All right, welcome in to episode 15 of Fatal to Prejudice. Buddy Patrick is here, finally. I've been harassing him for a little bit. Not really. Not really. <laughs> it's like two text messages. Yeah, two text messages. Um, so Patrick's another bourbon buddy. Uh, the <laughs> The story of how we met is fun, so I'll just tell it. <laughs> well, you can tell your side as well. The part where I almost shoot you? Yeah. Okay. The part where you almost shoot yeah. me. <laughs> it's actually important. Yeah. Because I didn't end up shooting him, obviously, mm-hmm. because he's sitting here talking to me. And it didn't end badly because he's sitting here talking to me. So. <laughs> right. So it was uh, 2018, mm-hmm. right? Uh, summer 2018. And we were, like, somehow connected through the bourbon world and through um, a national group. Yeah. Through a national group. Didn't know each other. And I had a bottle I wanted to trade away. And uh, this guy was like, Hey, do you want to do that? But locally. And I was like, well, shit, that makes it easy. No, no, no. You asked me for my zip code to ship it to. And I gave you 43201, and you're like, oh, shit, that's Columbus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then I was like, shit, that's easy. I don't have to ship it anywhere. I can just meet this guy in person. Your memory's so bad. Maybe I I should tell the story. All right, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) So Cameron throws up a bottle of Elmer T. Lee on his national group. And I'm like, Ben. But I'm so new, I don't even really realize what Ben means. For the uninitiated, Ben means buy it now. So I bend this bottle. We work out shipping details. Also, the price on this bottle is ridiculously low at this point. It's like tripled or quadrupled in price at this point. So, uh, yeah, so I give him the zip code. And he's like, dude, that's Columbus. You're in Columbus? I'm in Columbus. So we make arrangements to meet. Uh, at the time, I was uh, most familiar with the area around North High Brewing. And I said, well, why don't we just meet in the Kroger parking lot on King and High, which is a pretty busy intersection, pretty busy campus, always people around, because it's my first time doing a uh, allegedly illicit bourbon deal. Um, you know, so I was a little nervous about it. And I'm like, this guy's going to rob me. This guy's going to try to accost me, take my money, whatever. He's going to have friends jump out. So I roll up, and uh, I always, uh, you know, I'm a, a firm believer in the Second Amendment and uh, never really carry my firearm unless, you know, I feel like it's a sketchy situation. Craigslist deal. Yeah, Craigslist or deal. Facebook marketplace. Facebook or... marketplace deal, meeting a dude in a Kroger parking lot for a bottle of bourbon. I think also it should be mentioned that this Kroger at King and High – or wherever it's at is notoriously called Crow Ghetto. I mean, it's across the street from a methadone clinic. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a little rough. Yeah. It's a great <clears throat> spot. Yeah. You know, if you're trying to get hookers and blow or, you know, eggs and, and bananas. With a needle in your shoe. Sure. While you're walking, sure. putting the cart away. Sure. You know, everybody wants a little hep C while they're shopping. I mean, that right. makes sense. Anyway. <clears throat> anyway, so I roll up, you know. I uh, I strap up. By the way, I'm uh, the whitest guy you could ever meet, so me saying strap up is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> strap up, and I pull up, and uh, I notice that Cameron at the time is 
like skinny white dude driving a little BMW. And I was like, oh, this guy's a bitch. I'm not worried about it. I put my gun away. So we do the deal. And then, you know, we kind of talk bourbon for a little bit. And uh, we just kind of became friends. We we did a couple other deals like that, kind of arm's length. And then he uh, he invited me to this thing with his cousin Gary. Uh, I think he's been on here. The dental student. Yeah, the dental student. Which episode was that? Four or uh, five? Second episode. Second episode. So, you know, meet up with the rest of the degenerates. And uh, slowly but surely we became P-Dog and the Bourbon Boys. So that's me. I'm P-Dog. They're all my minions and my bitches. It's not true. <laughs> just none of them are called P-Dog, so it didn't make sense to exclude that. Yeah. Just like a shitty band name. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> We're the worst cover band known to man. No, known to man. It's probably pretty true. Except maybe Millie Vanilli might have us beat. Well, I mean, at least the music was good. Yeah. But their lips moved out of sync a little <laughs> bit. And they were not. Just were a not, little bit. Just a little bit. So, yeah. So, that's how Cameron and I met. Um, yeah. Fun stuff. Uphill or downhill after that. I mean, you know, we've done some crazy things, done some not so crazy things, shared a lot of pores. A lot of stories, um, physical assaults, you know, nothing like tipping him over uh, in a chair and uh, not spilling his bourbon. So fire pit nights, big man chats. Yeah, that was that was a fun time. We have we have ridiculous times together. <laughs> yeah. But like all legal, all on the up and up. Yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. So but not not too degenerate, but a little degenerate. Yeah. Like white guy degenerate, like you know, not uh, not getting too crazy. You know, no <laughs> one's no one's uh, no one's taking their clothes off. Let's just say that. Yeah, this isn't a this isn't the Super Bowl. Correct, correct. So yeah, so uh, I am not a Columbus native. Yeah, let's uh, let's get into it. Yeah, as they like to remind me, I'm the California princess. I. Uh, I had this really bad habit for several years, and it comes out when I'm drunk um, or sober, really. It just comes out that, uh, you know, I'm from California, so they like to remind me that, uh, oh, Patrick's from California. Yes, I'm from California. So I was born and raised in the Central Valley of California. Um, Blue-collar, working parents, you know, standard kind of upbringing. Um, but we lived in the in the green belt or some, you know, the central Valley of California where all the food's grown. So, you know, they like to throw out the stat that 90% of the food in the country is grown in California. So that's where I grew up, grew up in, uh, in an area with a Heinz 57 plant. So our high school was next to that. So football practices, you would always get the smell of tomatoes and onions. That was, uh, always a good way. You always want a French fries in the afternoon. <laughs> what was the like closest town? Cause I, I I know like Greenbelt, but like was it just super rural California? You don't know anything? No, no, like, no, 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 no. I mean, or, I mean, it's not rural. Like when we say rural here in Ohio, it's like literal middle of a cornfield. Like yeah. we had a Walmart, we had a mall. Like I remember we got a mall at fifty thousand people. So I mean, I lived in a in a larger town, um, sixty miles directly east of San Francisco. So okay, so it wasn't too far away. No. No, it was a, they call it a, you've heard of a suburb. It was a bedroom community of San Francisco. People would live there and commute the hour into San Francisco. Gotcha. So, you know, it would be like, um, I don't know, like Zanesville, if you will, to 
Columbus. Yeah. Right. Like large enough. You have your own stuff. You don't have to, you don't have to go to town. It's not like Logan where you got to go to town to get stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, working class, you know, farm fields all over my, for context, my stepdad farmed 90,000 acres in the seventies when he was in high school and growing up, you know, that was the family farm. Uh, my mom was an office manager for a cable company um, that is no longer around. Um, it was gobbled up by AT&T eventually. So, you know, went to church every Sunday, did, you know, all my Catholic sacraments, Sunday school, you know, youth groups and all that kind of stuff. So pretty typical, pretty typical growing up experience. You know, I was one, well, I was, I was born first, so I was the oldest my sister came along with then my mom remarried when I was about 12. So I suddenly got thrust to be the middle child. So I'm a redheaded middle stepchild. So <laughs> it's not as bad as it sounds, but it's, uh, you know, it's not a bad place to be. So, you know, suddenly had new brothers and sisters and we ranged in age, you know, there's only about a year between each of us. So we went, you know, we go like 44, 43, 42, 41, 37, you know, we were all pretty close in age. Um, an older sister, an older brother, a younger sister and another younger sister. So, yeah, I mean, vacations were camping or, you know, my stepdad was really into fishing and hunting. So we did a lot of outdoor stuff. Um, you know, like I said, fairly, fairly simple, you know, slice of Americana in the middle of California was farly less crazy and liberal than it is now, you know, back then. And, you know, it was just kind of a nice place to grow up and, and raise a family. I, I went back probably, I don't know, two years ago, three years ago. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but like you go to the place where you were raised and it just, nothing looks the same. And I just remember going back and it was in the summertime, which is not a fair comparison, but like everything was brown or shades of tan. Like, like everything was brown and tan. It was so bad. Like nothing was green. However, California has been in a drought in one way, shape or form for the last, you know, right. 20 years. So, uh, yeah, high school looked different. Heinz factory closed. You know, it was one of those towns when the factory closes, like everybody's impacted. Um, my stepdad worked at the Heinz 57 plant. So, you know, when they closed, he had to do other work. Uh, he's a welder by trade, uh, mechanic, kind of a, you know, man's man, blue collar. Um, honest, stern, but also like, you know, you didn't get your ass beat unless you really deserved it. And you knew, you already knew it was coming. Right. So, you know, it was a, it was a pretty easy upbringing as long as you stayed within your, you know, within your lines. Um, I would say that I pushed the boundaries a little bit less than my brothers and sisters. And I was kind of the smart one to learn from their mistakes. Um, but you know, we all pretty much got along. I mean, it's, it's difficult blended families and things like that. And everyone's trying to find, you know, their own place. And I think for me, you know, I just wanted to be accepted by my brothers and sisters. It wasn't about proving who was better, or who was worse. It was just, you know, about acceptance and, you know, finding my way. Cause I didn't have older siblings or a brother, right? I just had my little sister who was four years younger, which doesn't sound like a big gap, but when you're 12, it's like, she's eight and you're 12 or you're 13 and she's nine. And like, you're into different things. And, you know, so it wasn't until later in life that her and I became close. So, you know, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was growing up, you know, fairly book smart, you know, I played sports, I was in the band, I was kind of that friend that 
had friends in every friend group, but I didn't belong to any friend group. You know, I could hang with the nerds, but I also would hang with the band people because I played trombone. But I also was the starting nose guard in football, so I would hang out with the cheerleaders and the and the football players, right? And then I was in all the uh, honors classes, so I was hanging out with the nerds and the, you know, I played chess at lunch, right? So, like, but then I also worked. So, like, I didn't have time to go out and party. Not, I mean, I'm not kidding anybody. I was not the kind of person that was invited to parties. Um, my wife now, I am married. Uh, she has been on this podcast, as Cam said. But, uh... She says it's a good thing we didn't meet in high school. And she always says, oh, honey, when she looks at old pictures of me. So, and uh, says that I've gotten way more attractive with age. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, everyone has that awkward phase, especially in high school. But, you know, I went to a working class high school. You know, we were a international baccalaureate magnet school, whatever that means anymore. It just means we didn't do the AP stuff. We did IB stuff instead. We were a performing arts magnet, so we had money for you know, performing arts and drama and band and things like that. Although I never, uh, I think two out of the four years I was in band and I always had to wear like not a uniform. Um, cause there was like four guys that were all about the same size and we only had one size uniform. So, uh, but then, you know, football was, you know, Friday nights, Friday night lights, all that kind of stuff was, uh, definitely a ritual homecoming and, you know, standard high school stuff. But I don't know. Straight A's for the most part, you know, honor student, got accepted to college right out of school and uh, uh, was going to go to Fresno State. And, um, yeah, a buddy of mine was like, hey, you know anyone that wants to move to San Francisco? And I promptly raised my hand and canceled going to Fresno. For anyone listening that knows where Fresno, California is, it's literally the armpit of California. It is like... (laughs) 90 miles to 100 miles from Bakersfield. It's 100 miles from uh, Stockton, Modesto. It's 100 miles from the coast, and it's 100 miles from Yosemite. Um, Fun fact, its airport code is FAT, Fresno International Terminal. Um, (laughs) And it's the gateway to Yosemite because Yosemite is about 100, 120 miles away. So climbers, international people would fly into Fresno to, you know, get access to uh, Yosemite, which is beautiful. Uh, Highly recommend you go before it burns down or... It's flooded by global warming or whatever. Um, so, yeah. So, my prospects after school was, or after high school was, moved to Fresno, which kind of sucked. Um, I was accepted for an industrial engineering, uh, ro- uh, not role, but program. Um, gave my deposit for the dorms. Was all ready and set to go. Filled out the FAFSA. And then I want to say, like, July, canceled all that and moved in with my buddy into a 500 square foot apartment with two other dudes so we had a one bedroom apartment with a twin bed and two bunk beds and we paid 1680 a month for this so uh, what year was this this was 2000 and two, yeah 2000 this would have been september of 2000 oh wow okay so you know cam was barely like walking at that point <laughs> i was he's definitely not talking he's a little, a little mumbler oh i was talking <laughs> <laughs> but uh not saying anything valuable, but I was talking. <laughs> Nothing much has changed. Um, I thought that was uh, I thought that was earlier, nope. but yeah, okay. So yeah, so moved to San Francisco, blew off college. You know, kind of the understanding that I would go to college. We lived, you know, steps away from uh, SF State, so San Francisco State. Uh, my buddy Ray, who's uh, will probably at some point remotely be on this podcast. He's got a great story. Hopefully. 
Hopefully he, he can uh, come and visit soon. Yeah. I hopefully. like Ray. Um, I like Ray, too, sometimes. I don't <laughs> like to tell him that to his face, though. He gets a big head. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, grew up in – or not grew up, but lived in the shadow of a university. Kind of got that university life without going. I'd hang out a lot in Ray's dorm room. Um, it was actually funny. I would eat in the dining hall. People would just, like – buzz me in on their pass or whatever <laughs> or i tailgate into it and uh all of ray's friends would be like do you even go here and i'm like no <laughs> like what are you doing here i'm just hanging out so i kind of got the college experience without actually having the uh the debt or the tuition uh requirements um i worked down on fisherman's wharf so if you've ever been to san francisco you've probably been to fisherman's wharf it's a big tourist attraction i'd look at alcatraz every day i ran a store a retail store called Big Dog Sportswear. Um, I think they're still around, but you mostly find them in like outlet malls and things like that. They had like cliche sayings about things like, you know, if you're not a big dog, stay on the porch, you know, apparel, um, big St. Bernard looking dogs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, boxer shorts, you know, whatever. Really so, reminding me of like the, the tap out era of clothing and like affliction. Yeah. Well, that so this predates that by like six or seven years, right? Wow. So that was big, you know, that was big in the mid, you know, mid 2000s or probably coming of age, you know, on the tail end of Von Dutch and all those things. But yeah, uh, for the for the younger generation, anyone listening that's not, you know, 20s and older, please check out that era of style <laughs> because it was hot fucking garbage <laughs> trucker hats and uh pinstriping and roses and yeah but no big dog sportswear was more tailored for the non-athletic you know dads in the group right you okay. take your kids to the outlets and you know the wife goes to mikasa and the dad goes to big dog sportswear and gets a sweatshirt you know like triple x right so like it was not that kind of not that kind of brand um I don't know if they're still around. They were based out of Santa Barbara. So, anyways, I ran a store there. Um, I definitely remember working with my district manager. And I said, I mentioned something about uh, about high school. And she goes, what? And I was like, yeah, like I just graduated high school. And she's like, how old are you? And I said, 18. And she's like, I hired an 18-year-old to run my million-dollar retail store great <laughs> and just like took a sip of her wine and oh that's what it was she offered me like she offered me a drink and i was like oh i'm only 18 i can't drink or whatever so uh yeah so that was an experience um my uh my sole job was to control loss prevention shoplifting was a big deal down there on the wharf and uh uh eventually that store closed um mostly because their rent was like $18,000 a month and they were paying me $29,000 a year. So I thought I was doing well. Um, and then I found out how much the rent was. I was like, this sucks. Um, made some lifelong friends working there. Um, still very close, but, uh, parlayed that into going to Nordstrom. So I worked in the ladies shoes department of Nordstrom, uh, on fifth and market street. So the big flagship San Francisco, uh, Nordstrom so you want a humbling experience sell lady shoes to uh to old ladies and uh because I wasn't working in the young girls there was like three divisions of shoes at Nordstrom there was BP which I don't know what that stood for there was women's shoes and then there were salon shoes so salon shoes would be like uh the Louboutins and you know Manolo Blahniks and like fancy shoes 
Um, these were more mid-tier shoes, ranging in price from like two fifty to like hundred dollars. Where the BP shoes were more younger, hip. You know, they were the Steve Maddens and things like that. Did that for a while. I figured out that I was not a very good salesman because um, I would just sit with a little old lady and try to sell her as many shoes as I could, and she'd walk away with a pair of Clarks for like eighty nine dollars, and I, I just wasted all this time, and I was paid on commission. I was like five bucks an hour. And then everything else was like a 30% commission, but I had to sell it or whatever it ended up being. Um, so I didn't do too well at that job. Um, ended up getting laid off at the end of the season. And then, um, yeah, at the time I was dating this girl that lived up in Napa and her mom worked at a winery. And her mom was like, I mean, if you want to live in Napa, uh, I can get you a job at the winery. So, you know, first two jobs in my life outside of high school, because in high school I had a couple jobs, but uh, first two jobs were in retail and then they're like hey come work at a winery in st helena california which if you've ever been to napa valley like that's what people talk about when they talk about napa valley is st helena um and i said well let me think about it i moved home with my mom and and stepdad for like two weeks and i was like oh i can't live here like i've lived on my own for a year i'm 20 years old or almost 20 years old like this isn't gonna work out so i took uh i took her mom up on her offer got a job, moved into her house. Uh, the girlfriend promptly moved to LA with her best friend at the time. So I was staying in her old room, uh, which coincidentally is the room that I lost my virginity in. Um, and then, you know, like a couple months later, she cheats on me with some other dude down there. So like, I still continue to live there cause I was working at the winery. So I, and like, it's not close. Should they lived in Napa proper? Um, and the next like nearest place for me to get a place would have been Vallejo or Benicia, which is like an hour from St. Helena. Back then it wasn't as long cause you didn't have as much traffic, but now to get from there to there is like an easy, like a solid hour, like allow time for stops and you know, gas and all that. So, uh, but I, I did well at the winery. Um, they brought me in cause I knew a little bit of high school Spanish. Um, and they wanted me to, work on the barrel pad pressing wines and tracking and and uh writing down the pressures at which grapes were pressed and the experiment was does the wine get better the more stress it's under the more pressure that you push it through the skin so that was kind of the experiment that really never, never got off the ground they invested millions of dollars in this pad and this bladder press and i learned a lot about booze but at the time i didn't really drink you know I probably drank what everybody drank when they were 18 or 19 year old, you know, Boone's farm. Um, if fireball was a thing, I probably would have drank fireball. I think seven and seven Seagram's Seagram's seven and, and seven up was, you know, what I would go to if I drank at all. But I remember getting a case of wine at Thanksgiving or Christmas and giving it all away. Cause I'm like, I don't drink this shit. This is what my mom's drink. You know, this is what my mom drinks. <laughs> um, Funny enough, my mom's wine is Sutter Home, and Sutter Home is the next door winery to where I'm working. So, um, kind of cool experience. But they quickly learned that I was a little bit smarter than just writing numbers down on a clipboard. So they put me in the barrel room, and I ended up being the barrel master um, during that time. So there's a little bit of background that that. Uh, that winery was in, the, it was the last union in the valley, right? So the last winemakers or food workers of America or whatever union it was at the time, that was the last winery that had a union. 
and they were ho- the union was holding out for Crush to go on strike because they were up for contract renewals. And you got to remember, I was 19 going on 20. I didn't know any of this stuff. I just knew that my dad was in a union. And I remember him giving me his blessing, like, somebody's got to work. Somebody's got to do it. And, you know, you cross that picket line, right? So I was a scab. Um, they probably went through 400 people in that 10-month period. I was the only one to be kept on after the lockout ended. And I worked with the union workers that I crossed that picket line. So that was a kind of an uncomfortable situation. But that's how a 19-year-old kid ends up being a barrel master for 10 months for uh, Charles Krug Winery, not sponsored. Um, you know, I managed about 12,000 barrels, um, just like bourbon barrels, wine barrels, same size, same kind of, you know, idea. And I discovered that I have a really phenomenal memory. Like I could tell the lab people where barrel lots were individual barrels or, you know, things like that. I taught myself how to drive a forklift. I ran a crew of five guys. So we would pull and shift, pump, clean, um, unload trucks, you know, and all the sanitation that went along with, you know, any food grade operation. So 19, 20 years old, I'm working shoot during crush. I mean, we were working 16 to 20, you know, 16 to 20 hour days, just trying to keep up, you know, and produce wine. So that would have been in 2001, 2002. Um, that was a great, it was a great experience. Um, I learned a lot about booze. I learned a lot about how things were made. And at the time, I was like, eh, this is stupid. This is just a job. But later in life, as I become a amateur bourbon aficionado or collector <laughs> or degenerate, whatever you want to call me. Good um, degenerate. <laughs> there's there's a lot of parallels between wine and bourbon, especially when you get into the bur- you know, the barrel the barrel stuff and the cooperage and, and you know, the different woods and seasonings and all that. Let's, let's go for it. Uh, I'm interested. Let's hear about it. <sighs> I mean, what do you want to know? All of it. So it starts with grapes. Yeah. Well, it starts with a vine, Dick, you know, if you're going to go there. Okay. You know, you got to plant the vine in the soil in the right region with the right, uh, the right sun and moisture and all those sorts of things. But yeah, I mean, once the grapes get to us, um, so Charles Krug is interesting. So Charles Krug is actually owned by a Mandavi. So it is the Mandavi that you're thinking of. So Robert Mandavi, um, is brothers with Peter Mandavi and their father, Cesare Mandavi, bought the winery in like 1940, 1941, somewhere around there. Charles Krug was actually a Prussian immigrant. And it's the, and I feel like all the wineries say this, so I don't know how honest it is, um, but it's the longest running, continuously run winery in Napa Valley or something like that. And I'm sure there's other wineries that can make that claim, but they were founded in 1860 by Charles Krug, Prussian immigrant you know, bought by Cesare Mandavi in the 40s. Um, Cesare, I think he died um, shortly thereafter, like maybe like five, ten years later. Left the winery to his wife and two sons to run. Well, Peter Mandavi really wanted to focus on enology um, and viticulture, right? So the, the, the craft of making wine, the craft of growing grapes in the right manner with the right soil and right water temperature, not water temperature, but water content, when to, when to, uh, when to prune and when to pick and how to press and really the science behind it. He was a food, I think he was like a chemist or a food scientist or something like that. Robert Mandavi wanted to invest in marketing. He's like, Listen, the wine can be good or it can be shit, but if nobody knows about it, then you're never going to sell it. 
So I like telling the story of everybody's heard of Robert Mondavi, but nobody's heard of Peter Mondavi, right? And it's because they took two distinct different ways. And Robert Mondavi makes some really good wine. Charles Krug makes some really good wine. Um, so I was at that, that like familial, you know, uh, running of the wineries and, and the family aspects of things was always kind of an interesting dynamic because Peter's sons actually ran it. You know, Mark was in the, was in the, the vineyards. Um, his other son, I can't remember his name, um, at this off the top of my head, but he was like the CFO. Um, I remember this cause he drove like a seven series BMW and drove in from Danville, which is super fancy. But, you know, it was a good experience working at the winery, making the wine, learning all the pieces. I worked under a, a winemaker named Jack Cole. And it's not until you look back in hindsight that you realize the impact that people have on your lives. Because at the time, I'm like, oh, this is a job. I think I was making like 15, 16 bucks an hour, which that was really good. Because when I was making $29,000 a year, that's only $13 an hour, right? It's not, it's not a lot of money. Um, you know, and I got a lot of experience and a lot of skills. Um, but Jack really kind of took the time to take it a little step further. I mean, I remember laying these barrels out at 6 a.m. You know, I'd lay down 16 barrels. I, you know, I'd been working for an hour, lay them down, and Jack comes down with a piece of chalk and a glass, and he's just popping bungs and tasting wine and making marks and saying, pump this one, pump this one, dump this one, put this one back. Um, and it took a little bit, but eventually he's like, I've got 200 barrels to taste. Let me take, let me f show you what I need, what I'm tasting for. Right. So good, batter, you know, good, batter, better, um, tasting for that vinegar taste, right. Tasting for if the, if the barrel has spoiled. So he really took the time to educate me. Um, and it was perfect cause I didn't like wine. So I was able to spit it out on the floor anyways, cause you know, 200 <laughs> barrels, uh, you taste a hundred of them. I don't care who you are. You're getting a little buzz. Even if you're spitting everyone, just having the alcohol content swish around in your mouth. But yeah, I mean, it was fun. Like learning that craft, learning what, you know, how to blend wine, how to, what makes a good wine. And I think that that translates to bourbon a lot, right? It's, uh, the good brands that we all seek, you know, it, it depends, right? It, people like consistency, right? So the trick is when you, when you're working with, a fruit that is a variable every year, right? You could have a wet winter, you could have a dry winter, you could have a cold spring or a really hot summer, right? That's going to affect your sugars. That's going to affect the the development of the juice, you know, in the, the actual juice, not bourbon juice for all you taters out there. Um, <laughs> the actual, you know, juice coming off the grape and then how that ferments. So the skill in producing a quality spirit or wine is consistency year after year because most people the, I would say you know on the bell curve you know 75% of the people out there just want a consistent experience if they they're going to open a bottle and they're going to know what it's going to taste like right or it's going to take them back to a special place or a memory or a you know some people drink to be sad some people drink to be happy and I think it's that consistency that emotional connection to that flavor profile and then you start getting into like people like us that seek out single barrels for the uniqueness because we're bored with the consistency. But I think that every every winery, every distillery, any beer maker is searching for that consistent product. You know, I know we bag on things like uh, Jim Beam, Bud Light, Coors Light, uh, Boone's Farm, right? But they taste the same whether you buy that bottle in California or Maine 
or you see it in Japan or you see it in South Africa, it's always going to taste the same or pretty close to. Um, it's like Coca-Cola, right? It's consistent. People want consistency. We're all creatures of habit. Right. So, you know, learning about how to blend, when to blend, when to edit, um, how to take certain grapes from different regions um, of the valley or even different soil contents. Um, I didn't get into all of that, but because I partnered closely with the lab because the lab was off the barrel room. And so if the lab needed to take samples to monitor pH or sugar or whatever, they would need someone that drove a forklift to extricate those barrels. I mean, these barrels were on racks, six barrels high, four barrels to a rack, and like 23 rows deep by like 30 rows long, double-sided. So this is a very large room, temperature controlled. And your margins... Your margins are very, very low, and these these barrels are not strapped down to the racks. So if you're all the way up on a forklift trying to get those top barrels, and mind you, some of these barrels would be worth five to ten thousand uh, dollars just in cost, right? So not even retail cost, not like final product cost, but you crack a barrel of wine, um, you know, you're losing two years of hard work, and and depending upon the you know the vintage and the the vineyard it came from. You know, Charles Krug managed 900 of their own, you know, 900 acres of their own grapes. So, you know, you couldn't just go back to the store and get another bushel of grapes and like make another barrel. So, um, but surprisingly, wooden barrels dropped from like 20 feet in the air are extremely resilient. They don't smash open like you see in the movies. They uh, they just kind of crack and slowly leak or quickly leak. So, you know, you can typically salvage you know, 30 or 40 gallons from a 55 gallon barrel. If you're like quick on it, you know, get the barrel back up, get it tilted, all those sorts of things. But, um, yeah, I taught myself how to, how to drive a, a forklift, um, which kind of led into my next stint. Wait, any more questions about wine? Um, I actually did have a couple of questions. You, you mentioned like some, I guess, what slang for wine, making like the pump and dump of the barrels and like editing the barrels as well what is what does all that mean yeah so you know the enemy of any spirit or alcohol is air right so same thing in bourbon but in bourbon they don't top the barrels off right so in bourbon they just kind of they hammer in wooden bungs that's the angel share the devil's cut whatever you want you know whatever marketing slogan you want to use um because the alcohol content is so high in bourbon, it kills any bacteria, right? You can still have sour barrels, I'm sure. And I'm sure if you talk to master distillers, they have a, a profile that they're looking for. In wine, it's different. Your typical alcohol percentages by volume are anywhere from 8 to 14%, maybe 15%. Any ports that are higher than that are typically fortified after the fermentation process and aging process. But you're tasting these to make sure that they haven't gone... Um, we called it VA, and I'm sure someone out there knows what that stands for, but it's a basically an enzyme or a bacteria that grows within the wine and basically turns it to taste like vinegar. It turns it sour. And there was a mathematical formula or like a like a measurable limit for what that was, and it was either under 1.0 or over 1.0. Um, but you could it was noticeably tasteable once your palate is trained. And like once you've had a bad barrel of wine, you will never forget that taste. Um, it's like drinking vinegar. It's like take a bottle of red wine uh, vinegar and try it. 
and that's on par with what those bad barrels would taste like. But it hasn't been refined or filtered, right? So you might get a little scum, you might get whatever. And that's just air coming in contact with the product. So there's things you could do to mitigate that. Um, on the back of most wines, you'll see contained sulfites. You would put sulfites in the wine. It fights that, that growth. You would also top the barrel up, right? So you would take a barrel as a sacrificial barrel. You would top up the barrels to like remove the headspace, right? You 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 take the air out of it. So by filling it up, there's no air, therefore things can't grow. You could also pour gas on it, um, nitrogen or argon, you know, some inert gas uh, to displace the oxygen as well. We would do that more though when we're pumping in and out of tanks and doing blending. Um, more so because these are open open top tanks. There's no way to keep the air out of it unless you put a layer of inert gas on top. That was always kind of fun, you know, kind of figuring out the science of, of, of winemaking. But as you're going through, you know, each barrel, like bourbon, is going to have its own characteristics, right? You can buy barrels from cooperages that are using the same wood, but what is a natural product? And two trees standing right next to each other, same age, might have completely different characteristics in how that wood grain was formed, the flavors they impart, the uh, the um, the acidity that they impart, and all the flavor profiles. So, you know, the cooperages would do a really good job of trying to mix and match those woods. So you're not building a single barrel from a single tree. You're trying to mix and match so you get a fairly consistent profile. Um but there were still differences, right? So you could try two barrels, same wine, pressed and fermented at the same time, pumped into two different barrels, and they would taste completely differently, even if you did everything exactly the same. Um, so in the blending process, you would taste the barrels. Um, no different than if you've ever gone on a barrel tasting for bourbon, right? You're putting them down on the floor, you're popping the bungs, you're getting a thief or some sort of instrument to withdraw, you know, a sample of that wine, and you would, you would try it. Um, it was fancy. You'd walk around, you'd literally walk around work with a wine glass, right? Cause you would still have the same, you know, same experience. You'd swirl, swish, taste and spit. Um, and you're looking for a, a particular blend. My job and my palate was not as well defined as a winemaker. I was like his, uh, I was his wine fluffer. I would go through to figure out the good and the bad barrels. So my job was just does it taste like VA or not taste like VA? If it was on the if it was on the bubble, I would mark it with a question mark so he would know which ones he had to go and taste, right? For the more, I don't say pedestrian wines, but depending upon what we were making, if it was just their shelf Cabernet, you know, he'd probably give me a little bit more latitude in the barrels that I would pick or not pick. If it was something more expensive or something more special like Generations, which was a meritage of multiple different grape types, he would be a lot more involved with like the actual blending and percentages. So, you know, I wasn't in charge of anything other than I was the, uh, uh, I was the, I was like the right hand, right? So he would tell me what to do and I would go and do it, right? So the pump and dump was, you know, if it was a VA barrel, typically that barrel got thrown away. There's not really much salvaging you can do once a barrel turns. Um, but the other barrels, you would blend into the actual wine that ends up in the in the in the bottle. Um, and Charles Krug was amazing. They had huge tanks, like seven hundred fifty thousand gallon tanks, million gallon tanks. Um, our gallonage was way less than that. 
you know, but they also did another brand called CK Mandavi, right? So if you recall the Mandavi story, CK was Cesare Mandavi's initials. So that was their, their Sutter home, right? So if you think about it, CK Mandavi did, I think at the time, and don't quote me on these numbers, but they were doing cases in the millions, right? They were on par with Behringer, Sutter home, you know, Mandavi, like putting out large quantity, you know, Magnum bottles that you buy at Costco nationwide, you know, globally where I worked in the Charles, it was a winery within a winery, right? So they would only do two or 300,000 cases of wine, which still a lot, you know, but not as not in the millions, right? So there was a lot more attention to quality. There was a lot more attention to the development of the wine, the aging of the wine, where CK Mandavi might only be aged six to eight months. Our wines in the, in the Charles Krug wine uh, were aged in the neighborhood of, you know, a year to two years, three years, four years, just depending, you know. And I only worked there for 10 months, right? So my visibility into all those things was limited. But I learned a lot from Jack Cole um, in in that process. And it's not until I got older in life and really started to drink wine and appreciate wine um, that I, I really treasure and covet those memories of, of, you know, working in a winery. So, you know, the pumping and dumping had to do more with selecting the barrels, uh, choosing which ones get pumped to the blending tank um, and then ultimately which ones would get blended. So it would go from the barrel to the tank to the bottle. Wow. That's really interesting. I'd, I've never been out into wine country or even to a winery at all, I don't think. Um, so it's just interesting to hear how it's made and being another aficionado of and someone who appreciates how these unique, I don't know, drinks are made. It's just yeah. so cool to learn about it. Lots of parallels to bourbon. So yeah. if you've been to a distillery and seen how they make bourbon, it's no different than that. You know, it starts with a natural product that gets fermented and makes alcohol. For wine, it's grapes versus for bourbon, it's, you know, grains. So yeah. it's it's really no different um, in that you're just starting with a different starting product. Um, wine's a little less, I would say that wine is actually probably a little more forgiving, um, only because a lot more flavor comes out because there's less alcohol content. So I think people expect a little bit more nuance, a little bit more fruit, um, where bourbon is a little bit stronger, right? And it imparts more of the oak flavor, more of the char flavor because wine barrels aren't charred. So there's very little smoke. It's more of a natural woody taste or oak taste. Um, interesting so lots of similarities um i know how to repair barrels uh that was something i would do i would frequently go and check for leaks uh check for wormholes because you know once again it's a natural product uh bugs were a concern um and it wasn't bugs that would get into the wine they were bugs that would bore through because like like little termites i don't even know if they're termites but they bore through the wood to eat the wood and they get to the wine and they would turn around because they're like, oh, I don't want that, right? But they would put these little tiny holes uh, in the wood, so you'd have to uh, you'd have to plug those leaks. Um, so one of the you know twice or three times a day, I would just walk the rows, looking on the ground, looking for puddles, you know. And then depending upon where it was, I'd either pull them down. Um, if OSHA's listening, I definitely pulled them all down every single time. Um, if OSHA's not listening, sometimes you climb the racks, um, you know. Uh, and and plug them in place because 
it wouldn't take you very long to plug it if you didn't have to pull them down. If you had to pull them down, sometimes that would take 45 minutes to an hour. And then you got to put them all back up again. So, And every time you touch a barrel of wine, um, it's an opportunity to drop it or break it or hit a stack. Or, you know, there's there's risk involved. Um, I didn't do this all by myself. Like I said, I had a team. Um, there's a guy, Joel. Uh, I don't know his last name. Couldn't tell you where he is. Never saw him again after that in my life. But he taught me how to drive a forklift. And frankly, he taught me how to drive a forklift because I was tired of waiting for people. Like, I would be like, hey, this needs to get done now, and people would be doing other things. So I'm like, I'm not going to be useless. I'm going to teach myself how to drive a forklift. And and I did with Joel's guidance, and I took the test and became forklift certified. Um, But driving a forklift, a little buzzed on wine, never a great idea. Um, And actually, the cops in St. Helena, you know, definitely back the blue and all those things. But, man, those cops were dicks during crush or blending season, they would wait outside those wineries and wait for the workers to get off and pull everyone over to see who was drunk. Um, really? Which was kind of a dick move, considering, like, your job was to taste wine. Like, it's not like we drank. I mean, there's def- I'm sure there's definitely people that would, like, drink to get drunk. Um, but, like, as an 18-year-old kid or 19-year-old kid, legally I was not allowed to drink wine. But that was my job, right? That was my job to taste, to taste wine. But nobody... I don't want to say nobody, but, like, drinking wine at 6 a.m., 7 a.m., being a little buzzed by 9, like, that wrecks your day. Like, you oh, know, yeah. especially a wine headache in a 19-year-old at, at noon that had never really had experience with alcohol. Um, that was Those weren't – those were fun days at first, and then it became work. So just like anything, you know, that I would consider fun now, it turned into a job, you know, and it was a, it was a job. Um, eventually I left. So, like I said, the union came back. I was the only one that was kept on – um, and I met the actual union workers that had worked there. Like, I remember this one guy, Alan, um, Alan had been there like 20 something years, like started right out of high school. So he's probably the age, he was probably the age I am now back then. Right. So he was probably 40, early forties. Um, really liked ass to mouth porn. That was one of the things I definitely learned about it. Like that, like dude had a massive porn collection and like wouldn't shut up about it. Um, Those, every single day, expecting that every single day, it was like, you know, if you can get a girl to go ass to mouth, like that's, that's clutch. And I'm like, Alan, I don't think that's clutch. I feel like that's like, that's not a real thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, turns out awkwardly. His wife worked at the Supercuts where I got my hair cut. So that was kind of awkward because then I met his wife. And I'm like, I really wanted to ask her, like, so do you go ask the mouth? Like, what's, <laughs> what's up with that? Why, why is that Alan's kink, right? Not here to kink shame anyone. Um, but uh, at the time, Alan had worked there 20-something years, had seniority in the union, was probably making 17 or 18 bucks an hour, and I was making 15 or whatever it was. Um but the overtime was nice, right? Because crush, everybody just crushes overtime. So, you know, my paychecks were huge. Um, you know, more money than I'd ever made at anything else. And I thought I was living high on the hog. Um, but, uh, yeah, so union comes back. And I'm like, this is awkward. And the management wanted to be like, hey, in our contract, we're allowed to t- keep two non-union member employees here. Um, we want you to be one of them. And I'm like, awesome. What are you offering? And they're like, well, nothing. And I'm like, hold up. You want me to come to work with these guys where I cross the picket line every day and not get compensated for it? 
So the balls on me is this 19 year old kid, like telling these dudes like that's not okay. Um, and I was kind of okay with it until they wanted me to work second shift. And I was like, guys, all my friends are in San Francisco. I'm living in Napa. If I work second shift, I'm not going to have any sort of life. And I said, so you want me to stay on? You got to make it worth my while. I've worked here for 10 months with no benefits, no vacations, no health care, no paid vacations. I want all the things that the union has. I want benefits. You know, I want all that stuff. And I'm like, done. And I'm like, and I want to make what Alan makes. I want 17 bucks an hour. And they're like, whoa, whoa, he's been here X amount of years. I'm like, you want to show them that they don't need the union? Pay like you don't need the union. I'm like, if you pay me well, that will get through, right? They think that they need the union to keep their wages. And they're like, okay, done. That's a pretty solid argument for a 19-year-old. Well, like I said, I was a smart little fucker, right? Like, <laughs> and my like I said, my dad was in the union. I I had experience, work experience for my grandfather. It wasn't my first time around the block, right? Yeah. So, you know, I said, if you want to build a case to de-unionize this place, you gotta treat me better than you treat your union workers. Otherwise, there's no reason for them to to dissolve the union. I'm like, you can make the argument that union dues are you know, that they cost you dollars per minute or, you know, dollars per hour from your salary. But at the end of the day, they feel that they need that protection. And listen, I'm a, I'm an advocate for unions. I think that they're a necessary evil. Um, I think that there's places for them and definitely, you know, they've done a lot for the labor movement in the U S. So I don't want to go on record as saying that like I'm breaking unions. That's not my stance. Um, in that particular instance, I thought that the union was, was required, you know, and even the, the requirements that they put on me, you know, uh, to stay there, um, I felt that they weren't unfair, but they definitely weren't making a case for what their goals were, right? Their goals were to break the union. I mean, they tried to do that, right, by, by locking them out. Um, so ultimately, you know, I'm standing in this office with the chief seller, you know, the, the seller master um, and the two winemakers and we're going through this and we're talking about my compensation we're talking about my employment and all the things and me being a little dick i got everything i wanted but they wanted me to work second shift and i said absolutely not and i fucking walked out i said i'm not working second shift i'm like i saved your ass in the barrel room i'm the only employee after 400 people that ran through that winery all from temp agencies right just you know lots and lots and lots of different people and i'm like i'm the only one you want to keep on and you want to put me second shift and like well you know alan works days i was like once again you're going back to this union mentality like is there any reason he can't work second shift and they're like well no i'm like so let me work second let me work first shift like i've been doing it and now you want to so long story short i walked out didn't have a job literally didn't have a job didn't know what i was going to do um, didn't have any money saved, uh, really kind of cocksure and idiotic at that point in my life. Like, but I was raised that I would always survive, right? Like I, I was scrappy, not physically scrappy, but I was scrappy. <laughs> right. So I think the next day I walked into a temp agency and said, I'm looking for a job. And I said, not a temporary job. I'm looking for a job like temp to perm, you know, permanent hire staff, like more like a staffing company. And they said, well, what can you do? And I said, well, I can pretty much do anything, um, but I'm looking to make at least 16 bucks an hour or whatever it was at the time. And she's going through the listings and she's like, well, 
a lot of my jobs for your experience are like 10 bucks an hour, 12 bucks an hour, you know, seller worker, you know, going back to the winery. I was like, well, I want to be a mechanic. And she's like, what? I was like, I mean, I grew up around mechanics. My grandfather owned a weed abatement business. I've worked on tractors. I've worked on cars. You know, she's like, do you have your own tools? I'm like, I'll get my own tools. You know, I want to be a mechanic. And so she had a position for United Rentals um, as a small engine mechanic. So your standard rental yard, you know, chainsaws, cutoff saws, lawn mowers, um, pickup trucks, you know, all that kind of stuff. Forklifts. Um, and other, like there were some like skid steers and some other heavy equipment. So walk in, interview with the guy. He likes me, basically hires me. So I worked through the temp agency for, I don't know, maybe a year, maybe eight months, something like that. And then it becomes the wintertime and United Rentals corporate says, let all the temporary workers go. Um, we're, we're, we're having a hiring freeze. Um, really liked that job. Worked for a guy named Ralph. Um, Ralph was kind of this old timer that was sitting in his office and smoked cigarettes and just like bitch and complain about everything. <laughs> um, he had, I'm sure, wise wisdom and idioms that I can't even remember. But, you know, Ralph was kind of like the grandfather that everybody wanted but like actually didn't want because, you know, he probably like asked to mouth porn too like Alan did. That's not true. I don't have anything <laughs> to base that off of. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, learned a lot, worked with a couple guys. Um, uh, I wasn't 21 yet because I remember Casey Fox – it was my birthday and he's like how old are you I was like i'm turning 21 he's like don't fucking talk to me till you're 21 he got really really mad i think he ended up being a cop at some point but uh there's this other kid um god i can't remember his name but he was kind of the like you watch any like really bad show like small town like well-known construction company family you know he had the last name and all that kind of stuff um Napa at its core is like a, like a small farming town, 50, 60, 80,000 people. Back then it wasn't all fancy. You could go to wineries and taste for free. You know, the Food Network hadn't discovered it yet beyond, you know, localized pockets of things. It's not like it is now where it's commercial tourism. Um, you know, this county fair would be demolition derbies and rodeos, you know, because at the end of the day, grapes have to grow by farmers, you know. They have a different name. They call it viticulture because they can't just say farming, right? They have to call it something fancy. But at the end of the day, um, it was a blue-collar town like Napa proper. When you think about Napa, you're not thinking about Napa the town. You're thinking about Napa Valley, which is more St. Helena, Rutherford, Oakville, Calistoga, um, those types of places. So, you know, they taught me how to work on small engines. I bought a basic craftsman tool set that you can find at Sears for a hundred bucks, you know, 200 pieces, um, borrowed my dad's toolbox from Heinz 57 that he wasn't using. It was just sitting in our shed, um, thing weighed a ton. Um, he made it. So I was kind of, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't say working out of a hand-me-down, but it wasn't the snap on toolbox that, that Ryan had, you know, it wasn't the Matco toolbox that Casey had. I'm like rolling in with like sheet metal and a padlock. Um, but learned a lot. Um, got laid off from there, but Ralph turned me on to United Rentals Aerial Division. And United Rentals Aerial Division worked with like the big sky, like sky lifts, like the, uh, like the JLG booms, like the boom lifts that you would go up like 100 feet in the air. 
scissor lifts for doing interior like electrical work and then telescoping forklifts like gray dolls and sky tracks and things like that mostly using like residential construction and he goes hey they're hiring down the road at Ariel. why don't you go apply there it's a different division they don't have a hiring freeze you're a good worker and just get hired on direct so i ended up doing that so here i was as kid and you got to remember that the time span here was six months at big dog sportswear six months at nordstrom selling lady shoes right 10 months at a winery maybe a year doing like chainsaw repair and lawnmower repair and now i'm gonna go work on like heavy equipment like big diesel engines hydraulics you know things that lift serious tonnage and and weight um or the boom lifts that you know are lifting people 100 feet in the air you know so the safety factor is like like you know your mind is blown a little bit so i go and apply for that job and i get the job and uh work for a guy named scott um i don't think scott's gonna listen to this but scott was a dick um <laughs> scott was like your typical like bro riding jet skis of the lake every weekend i mean if that's you out there like i'm sorry but you're kind of a douche um <laughs> You know, I don't know. He's just kind of a bro, like 29, 30-year-old bro that just, you know, I don't know. I don't have anything good to say about Scott other than, you know, he kind of taught me that he's the kind of boss that I don't want to be um, or the type of person I don't want to be. Not that he was a bad person. I just – we didn't really get along. Um, so I was a heavy equipment mechanic. I I taught myself everything I, I didn't know. I worked with an old-timer. Uh, his name was Rich. Um Really nice guy, kind of introverted, no-nonsense kind of guy, completely opposite of Alan. Would teach you anything if you had the patience to learn and ask the right questions. But he had no no tolerance for bullshit, right? Like, if you weren't going to learn from him, he wasn't going to spend the time with you. Um, and I grew there. I, I, grew as a, I grew as a man. I grew as an employee. I grew as a mechanic. You know, integrity, you know, work ethic. Um, I would wake up at 4 a.m. and I was on the job sites by 6. Uh, I eventually became a traveling mechanic, so I was a mechanic on the road. Um, started doing oil changes, you know, light repairs, triage, things that needed to come back to the shop. Um, but then eventually I became their lead mechanic on the road when the other lead mechanic left and went somewhere else. So I was driving, I think one year I did like 80,000 miles on the truck. It was crazy. My territory was from... And once again, if you're from Ohio, this means nothing to you. But my territory was from like Monterey all the way up to the Oregon border and from San Francisco to Lake Tahoe. So like pretty much half the state of California was my territory. Frankly, a lot. I went to Sacramento. I would go to wherever the housing projects were. But, you know, I'd been to Tahoe a couple times to do some services on forklifts. I'd been to, up to Fort Bragg, which is up near Eureka. I went down to Monterey and Carmel a couple times. Um but really kind of in and around that Napa because we were not just United Rentals. We were the Nor Northern California dealer for Skytrack Forklifts, which is now owned by JLG Gradle. Um, but I taught myself how to work on these forklifts that were very complex. You know, they had interior boom systems. They had axles that would fail. They had diesel engines. So I had to know about diesel engines. I had to know about hydraulics. I had to know about um, complicated telescoping mass geometry and cable systems. Um, and it was fun. Um, you know, I like the freedom of the road. It changed every day. Kind of sucked because sometimes I'd work from 4 a.m. to 6 p.m. or 8 p.m. or whatever. 
Um, cause if something broke and needed to be fixed and ready for the next day and I had the parts, like I would do it. Um, made a ton of overtime. Um, you know, and I think I was making 16 bucks an hour or whatever it was. It, it wasn't a lot of money per hour, but the overtime, you know, I was making 24 to 30 bucks an hour, depending upon the day, uh, you know, as we stretch into those overtime and because I was traveling, I got paid from the second I left that shop until the second I got back. Um, not a lot of weekend work. But during that time, I enrolled in night school. So I was like, hey, I can't be a mechanic for the rest of my life. I'll tell you, you know, my dad told me or my stepdad told me because um, I originally wanted to be a welder, mechanic, whatever. And he told me something very early on. He's like, Patrick, you're you're I don't think he said you're too smart to do this. But he, that was kind of the paraphrased version. Right. He's like, you're too smart to be a welder. You're too smart to like don't waste your time doing this because your body can only work for so long. Um, you know, use your brain you know, work smarter, not harder type of thing. And I was really offended at the time when he said that. Cause like, but I want to be, not that I want to be you, but like, I respect doing that kind of work, right? Like I respect my grandfather worked with his hands. You know, all my uncles were carpenters, you know, my dad, my, my biological dad, who, you know, I have a relationship with, you know, he was definitely in the picture. So I know I talk about my stepdad, but that's who I lived with. But I saw my real dad every other weekend, you know, he worked with his hands, shipping and receiving, logistics, you know, things like that. So, you know, the only one that kind of really used her uh, used her brain for work was my mom. And she was an office manager, right? So she, I guess it's like bluish white collar. Like it wasn't white collar, but like she wasn't in the fields, you know, or doing laundry. She was like managing an office, um, you know. So like that's, nobody went to college. Like that wasn't in the cards, Um I think my mom went to college a little bit, like a community college, and then she had me. So sorry, mom, that I ruined your <laughs> your <laughs> collegiate dreams. Um, but that's not what my family did. I think I think out of all my aunts and uncles on my mom's side, you know, two of them went to college. Um, I think my uncle is like one credit shy of actually graduating, and I like had a conversation with him like probably ten years ago. I'm like, just go take the class, like just finish. Like he's like, well, why? I'm a carpenter. Like I don't need it. I'm like, just fin- like just take the class i'm like i'm sure if you go and you show so he's a photographer and i think it was like a photography type of degree um and i think it was like a photography i'm like i'm sure you can show them that your portfolio of your global photography from fiji or africa or wherever you've gone and they'll give you the credit to be like yeah you can take some pictures but that's like the family i grew up in right we were blue collar we worked with our hands we worked with our bodies and and so that's what i wanted to do um but my dad told me, you know, my stepdad said, you know, you're too smart for this or whatever. So I enlisted in like night school, like a like an ITT tech, like a DeVry, right? I wanted a, a technical degree and they promised job placement and all these things. The school is no longer around. It was called Heald College, but they were regional to California. Um, I started in that school. Um, so I would work from 4, 5, 6 a.m. until 5, 6 o'clock at night run home, shower, throw my khakis of my polo and go and sit in night school to learn computer information technology, uh, whatever the fuck that was in 2003, four area. Um, so yeah, like excelled at that, quickly realized that like I should not have gone to that school, nothing against those schools, but you know, they were more remedial. They were just, they were almost like, um, I don't say job training that's not the right word they advertised is like they were going to teach you things but 
I had taken harder math classes in high school just because of my honors background. Um, at one point, the dean asked me to teach a class, and that's not the type of school that had students teach classes. Um, I taught a class, and then I was asked for my homework for another class when I wasn't in it. And I was like, no, no, no. If I'm teaching a class, I'm not doing the coursework as well for physics. Like, I've already taken IB physics, honors physics. Like, the physics I took in high school is harder than this physics class. And like, well, yeah, but you have to pass the course. I'm like, but I'm, I'm literally teaching. A, I'm teaching your students when you should. <laughs> you're not paying me. You're not. I'm paying you to be here. So how does that make sense? So I quickly stopped doing that because you know, as you mentioned earlier, it was a little. Uh, what did you say earlier about astute for a 19 year old or whatever? The uh, little, little, little ballsy. It's a. It was a great uh, argument for someone who's only like 19 years old yeah. to really connect all those dots and say fuck you <laughs> yeah well and essentially i was like sweet i'll teach a class like it'll taste for for what that feels like and uh not have to do homework and not have to do coursework and then i was like i'm not doing both fuck that um yeah. and pay you twenty thousand dollars for the degree no that's not how this works um and like you know i made some friends out of that and and my best friend jason which we haven't even really talked about jason um He's threaded in there everywhere, but uh, he was a quarter ahead of me, um, and actually inspired me to go to school. So, you know, it was that it was at that age, that 20, 21, 22, you know, go to school, get a degree, you know, get a job. Um, and I was a mechanic, like I said. Um, and when I graduated, like, oh, job placement. I was like, sweet. Like now I get to like make the real money. And like, yeah, we have this like help desk position of like. 12 bucks an hour like here you go and i'm like bro i'm making like 20 as a mechanic like thanks but no thanks right so you know but i recognized that you know being a mechanic was at least for me um it's an honorable trade i really do like working with my hands if i didn't have to work for money you know i'd probably be a metal sculptor a welder a woodworker a, a tinker you know whatever um because my brain's wired that way but at the time, I was like, man, this sucks. Like, I remember, like, my arms, like, I would wash my hands and my arms, and, like, they would just be stained black with grease and oil. And I remember looking down thinking, like, man, that's probably not good for me, right? Like, and it's and it wasn't like, and I'm not going to say that, you know, we have these protections now, but I, it there was no mention of, like, PPE and, I mean, like, wear your safety glasses, right? But, like, Nobody was like, hey, don't get oil on your skin. Like, that's not good for you, you know. So, you know, dark, you know, your fingernails were black. I remember after I quit that job um, and transitioned to another job, uh, it took like six months for my skin to like turn, like to expel all the like toxicity from Jesus. the oils and whatnot. It is so, so long. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, I don't know if it was six months, but it was a while. It was like long enough for me to be like, man, I've taken like 75 showers and this is still like, coming out of me right yeah um but uh yeah and like united rentals was fine like it was it was fine um they eventually hired this kid though that worked for why like not worked for wyotech but like went to wyotech right the like the national school for like if you want to be a mechanic and uh nice kid we were he was probably a little older than me i think he was like an air force vet you know like pretty young did his two to four years got out used the gi bill went to school um came to work for us was working in the shop as a like an electrical guy um 
but man, everything that guy touched turned to shit. Like, <laughs> like everything he touched that was fixed, I'd have to go out and fix after him. Um, and just one day at lunch, he was bullshitting and he told me how much he made, and he made two dollars more an hour than I did, and I was pissed. I was like, "Fuck this! I'm fixing everything that that guy's like fixing." So I went to my boss and said, "You know, Scott, I like a raise. Here's why: Gene left. I'm your only field mechanic." I'm busting my ass out there. I go wherever you tell me to go. I work whenever you tell me to work. And I'm like, and everything that homie, I don't remember his name, every, everything that, that that dude touches, I have to go and refix. And he makes more than, he's like, well, you're not supposed to know how much he makes. I'm like, well, I do. And he makes $2.50 more an hour than I do. And he goes, well, you know, we'll see what I can do. So he, um, uh, I had been talking to this, to this other company. They, uh, they were at a big like intersection on the freeway and they had a forklift, you know, up in the air and it would say mechanics wanted, right? Like literally mechanics wanted. And they were a dealership for heister forklifts and Bobcat construction equipment. And it was called Bobcat West and Pape material handling. And, uh, I remember Bobcat West because my grandfather had a Bobcat. I've got video of me as like an eight year old driving a Bobcat in his yard. Right. So like, and they had a cool logo with like, you know, the Bobcat logo, like, you know, the cool cat head and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I remember my cousin and I used to sit in my grandfather's office and it was like desk blotter with all the attachments that you could put on a Bobcat. You know, you could have the grappler, you could have the post hole digger, you could have the, you know, concrete breaker, you could have a number of different buckets. And I remember we used to sit around and be like, you know, cause we were eight and we we're dumb and we're like, we hate school. What would you put on your Bobcat if you're going to drive it through school? Not funny <laughs> now, but this was the 90s. Like, Columbine hadn't happened yet. You know, like, not saying I wanted to destroy a school as an 8-year-old. But we had rampant imaginations. So, anyway, so, you know, those were memories that I had, right? Like, I was familiar with the product. I knew how to work it. And I remember I called, and I talked to Diana on the phone. And she goes, not interested. And for whatever reason, I said well, can I call you back in two weeks? And she goes, sure. And I think she just, I think she just said sure without thinking about it. She goes, sure. So two weeks called her back and she goes, who are you? And I'm like, we talked two weeks ago. We talked about the job. I'm a mechanic. I gave her my resume and she's like, why are you calling me? I'm like, cause I asked you if I could call you in two weeks and you said yes. And she's like, and you're calling me two weeks later. I'm like, yes. And she goes, I don't have anything right now. Call me again in a month. Okay month goes by call her diana it's patrick yeah you have anything and she's like you're a persistent fucker aren't you and i'm like i just want a shot like let me come in and interview so i come in i interview i think i got dressed up i think i like got dressed up um and i remember she told me she's like you know just a tip if you're interviewing for a mechanics job don't don't wear a white button down shirt show up in coveralls and that kind of like you know, in retrospect, dress for the job you want, right? Like you're going to get dirty, you know, and not the coveralls, but like jeans and a, like jeans and a flannel would have been fine. Jeans and a polo, you know, I didn't have to get dressed up. And she goes, well, the only thing I have available is an oil changer position. So they would go out and service forklifts at like industrial plants, like, um, uh, oil refineries, paper plants, uh, there was a glass plant in that area, right? Um, lots of warehousing. So they wouldn't bring the forklifts to the shop. You would go out and change the oil. So you had a mobile van. 
And he goes, she goes, all I have is an oil changer position as a PM tech, preventative maintenance technician. That's the role. And it pays 20 bucks an hour. And I said, let me think about it. And she's like, you've been busting my balls for two months to get this position. You want to think about it? She's like, you have 24 hours. So that's, I think, when I went to Scott and said, you know, I want to raise. And he basically said no. Um, I was making 16 So it was a $4 an hour raise to actually do less work because I was doing all types of repairs at United Rents. And Pap A was going to offer me 20 bucks to, like, screw a filter on and screw a filter off. Like, that seemed pretty simple to me. Like, I had to do oil changes anyway. So, you know, that was part of the job that I had. Um, and I'll never forget it because, you know, I gave the notice at United Rents, accepted the job at Pap A, and um, Buster, he was the general manager. So Buster was Scott's boss. And Buster calls me. And I was, I had taken like a couple days off. It was Halloween or something. I was, you know, dating this girl and we had plans or whatever. And I'm driving through the Caldecott tunnel, which is the tunnel between like Oakland and like Walnut Creek. So like, uh, uh, like one valley to another, right? It's, it's, uh, not really important, but just, it's very vivid in my mind. He calls me and he's like, Hey, so I talked to somebody and like, you know, we're going to give you that raise that you're looking for. We're going to pull you into the shop, like da-da-da-da-da. And I was like, Buster, I'm like, my last day is tomorrow. The time to have made this phone call was two weeks ago. I'm like, I don't even I don't even want to hear it. I'm like, but I'll just tell you, a quarter an hour, so two bucks a day would have kept me working in your employ. Like, I wouldn't have left. That's all I wanted. I wanted a gesture of a raise, right? It had nothing to do with the dollar amount, but... You had a guy that you valued more than me. And when I came to you and asked you for a raise, even though I'm more than worth it, because he started to lay on the whole, like, what are we going to do without you? You know, we're going to be, you know, we don't have anyone to put in the field. And I'm like, that's not my problem, right? So, plus I was going to go to a place that was going to pay me $4 an hour more to work less. Like, to me, that was kind of a no-brainer. So, ended up at Pape. Um... Diana, oof, um, I learned a tremendous amount from Diana. Um, unique personality, f- paved her own way in a man, you know, in a men's dominated world of heavy equipment, forklifts, and compact construction equipment. You know, uh, as redneck and as hillbilly as you wanted to be, even though you're like, well, but it's California. Well, it was still agriculture, right? They were still had your clients were landscapers, your clients were ranchers, your clients were uh, factory workers, right? Like, you know, these were not these were not you know white collar professions. They were blue collar, and as much you know education and couth as you want to say, you know, that comes along with that, right? So. She grew up in this male-dominated world and, and made her bones. I mean, she was the number one store in the chain of these dealerships based out of uh, based out of Oregon. Lots of respect for Diana. Um, she taught me what it was to be a manager or more so, like, taught me what I didn't want to be as a manager, kind of like Scott in a little ways. Definitely taught me a lot about P&Ls, uh, financials, because eventually I moved from being just an oil tech, right? I, I, after 10 months, I ended up being a rental coordinator. So I moved from the shop working with tools 
and I moved in the office and I, I coordinated the the rentals of, of equipment. You know, some of these guys would need attachments for their bobcats. They need extra bobcats. They need a forklift for this or that. Um, something was broken in the shop. They needed a long-term rental, whatever. So I managed a yard guy and a truck driver and I managed the coordination of delivery of, of rental equipment. You know, I was quoting prices. So it was kind of my first experience after selling shoes of sales, right? But the sales were easier because they had a need and I had the equipment, right? So that was pretty easy. Your shit's broke. You make your money using this equipment. Like you don't make money. You don't feed your family. So it was a little bit easier for me because I didn't treat it like sales. I treated it as I was fulfilling a need. So I really started to shape the way that I thought about sales and and not thinking about it like I'm selling you something that I don't think you do, you need, right? Like a lady shoe, like, hey man, that Nike tennis shoe is gonna be way more comfortable than that four inch, you know, high heel. Like, why are you buying that? Um, but it really shaped the way that I started to think about sales, which leads me like later on in life, I think about a lot of the fundamental school skills that I bring to the table in my current profession. Um, I think about, you know, that the foundation was, was as a rental coordinator at Pape. Um, did that for about a year. And then the service supervisor position became available. So all the guys that I worked along with in, as a mechanic, as an oil changer, the shop mechanics, all these guys, I became their boss. I was like 24. And these, like, I had guys that were in their 40s and 50s. And like not nice people and not guys that just gave respect because of a title or a position. It was hard. I mean, it was hard. Like I like went to a therapist because I was so fucking stressed out about work and like Murph wouldn't do the thing that I asked him to do, even though I made the commitment to the client or, you know, uh, Justin didn't show up the way he wanted to and basically told me to go fuck myself. I mean, it was not easy being an oil changer, which they viewed as like low man on the totem pole to within two years becoming their boss. And there was only one guy younger than me. I think Jonathan was like 23, but like everyone else was older than me. They had way more life experience than me. Um, but I did that job for four years and you know, it was difficult. I learned a lot. I managed people. I think that my team size at its height was like 17 people because this was in, I worked there for six years, maybe a little over six years. They, uh, this was during 2007, eight, nine, 10, like great recession, housing goes down, construction goes down. We were a construction based and manufacturing based business. I think they cut my pay like 40%. Like, I mean, it, it was bad. Like it was like, be thankful you have a job type of mentality. And other people got laid off and they consolidated and consolidated. And so at, you know, I was running the shop mechanics, which at its height was eight. It got cut down to four. Then I was running the shop and the field mechanics. So that was another four guys. And then they consolidated. There was two other branches in the area. They consolidated the dispatcher position to a single position, which fell to me. So then I was managing the field mechanics for Fremont and the field mechanics for Santa Rosa. So I went from like 16, I went from like eight guys directly to like 16 or 17 guys spread out across a pretty big geographic area. And I did that for a while. Um, it was hard. You know, I think, I think 
when I wrote my resume, when I was looking to leave, I think I counted, like I would field something like 150 to 200 phone calls a day because I was taking phone calls from people with shit that was broken. I was quoting jobs. I was selling jobs. I was, you know, coordinating with the rental coordinators on things that needed to happen. Like I wasn't second in charge. There was a parts manager that had been there longer, but it went Diana, Ed, and me. Um, Ed and I technically were peers, but he he was parts i was service but ed had been a branch manager at a certain point so he 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 outranked me um but nobody outranked diana in the shop right and everybody knew it so she was the boss um hard-nosed um but you know she also became a friend i went camping with her and her husband you know my ex-wife and i you know we'd go over there and play cards with them we'd have dinner like you know it was it was kind of like if you were in, you were in, and if you were out, you were out, and, like, you took the good with the bad. Um, like I said, nothing but respect for her. You know, I think she's done incredible things for her and her family. We don't see eye to eye politically. Um, we don't see eye to eye on religion. We don't see eye to eye on a lot of things, but there's no doubt. Like, that's one person I can look at and say, you know, I may not like you sometimes, but I respect the, the hell out of you. Um, and, you know, that was – that was an eye-opening experience for me and said, you know, I, I probably won't be, uh, I probably won't go back to being a mechanic. I won't work with my hands. Like I made more money as a service supervisor, being a manager, kind of my first mid, you know, middle manager type of role, if you will. Um, I really wanted to do sales for them. I fought to do sales. Um, it was never really the right time. Um, it never really worked out. Um, and so, the recession hit. I taken such a big pay cut. I went from like sixty or sixty-five thousand, maybe seventy thousand a year, to like forty-two. Um, that was a big hit. Uh, my ex-wife at the time somehow didn't take a hit, but it was a real strain on our marriage at the time that like I wasn't coming in as an equal, even though we started as equals. But you know, once again, it was like just be thankful you have a job. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it turned down to, it turned out to, I started looking out, started looking at other companies, started looking for sales opportunities. And because I wasn't making as much money, there wasn't a big risk in taking a lower paying job. It's like, well, it can't get any worse than this, you know? And we're living in the Bay Area. I mean, we lived 30 miles from San Francisco. I mean, you look at San Francisco and everything costs a million bucks. Like we lived 30 miles east from that, where the house that we bought at the height of the market was like 550. We bought it in a short sale for 275. So like, you know, we weren't living in a cheap place. We weren't living in a place where, you know, my parents bought their house in the nineties for like 145,000. I mean, it's still California, California taxes, all those sorts of things. So, you know, we were thankful we were even, even able to buy a house, but it put a strain. And uh, so I started looking outside and I found a, Motorola dealership so like walkie talkies right but like commercial walkie talkies like police and fire you know bouncing signals off of antennas and repeaters and you could you know talk a hundred miles up and down California you know um, and they had a rental position or it was like an inside outside rental salesman and I talked to Marty he was a hiring manager and he was super like oh you have rental experience like you worked at United Rents and I'm like yeah, I was a mechanic, but I don't think he heard that. I think he thought that I had like counter experience, like how to rent that, which I did at Pape, but um, essentially he hired me to be their, their 
sales rep for the Bay Area. He was based up in Oregon. Um, he had a couple stores up and down the coast. Um, and so I was a walkie-talkie dealer, like which is completely random, right? So follow me here. Retail, <laughs> winery, uh, mechanic, uh, manager into like walkie-talkie sales or walkie-talkie rental sales. It's quite the jump. Quite the jump. Not as big as the next couple of jumps that we're going to talk about here. Um, so I'll pause there. Any, any, anything you want to open up or dive deeper into? Any, any questions on coming out of that big old dome of yours? <laughs> um, no questions so far. I think it's, it's very interesting hearing about your whole like professional life experience where, I don't know, I've heard, I've heard stories of like the personal life outside of work around this time frame. Um, that'll have to be part two <laughs> i feel like I feel like there's a lot in the in we this can, uh we can do section. part two i'm uh, trying to round out your calendar yeah we um, can do part two taryn gets a part two i want a part two damn it um taryn was talking about a part three secrets secrets teasers <laughs> spoiler alert yeah um, but yeah i think it would be it'd be cool to do like uh a part two talking about like personal experiences and like a parallel time of this. This all happens. I mean, there's a whole personal tract. I mean, my personal mantra or kind of belief is, you know, you have like your personal relationships, like your friends, you have your professional track and then you have like your romantic track and like pick two, two can be good. And like the third is always shit. Right. So like, you know, on these ups and downs with professional, uh, Friends came and left, relationships came and went, um, and I was very, uh, I tried to make up for lost time as being an awkward teenager, you know, as I filled out a little bit and grew some facial hair and didn't look like a chump. Um, (laughs) Well, less chumpy, I guess, would be the best way to put it. You know, I made up for lost time. So, yeah, man, I mean, so I switched to the wireless dealer. Um, That was fun. I learned a new skill. we were the uh, provider record for Moscone Center in San Francisco, which is their big convention center. They had repeaters inside. I got to see like underground infrastructure, program frequencies, like, you know, really kind of like cool, like James Bond type of shit. But really at the end of the day, it's just walkie talkie that talks on a frequency. Um, but since I had a background in tech, it made sense. Like, because they were all being programmed with laptops now. They were all digital and encrypted radios. Like, that's the direction it was going um, versus more analog radios and things like that. So um, my biggest deal was I provided the communications for 2011 Salesforce. So their Dreamforce uh, in San Francisco. So I provided and was on site for the entire time. So I sat in a little office, and we had these little Nextel two-way, you know, push-to-talk you know, phones, which you can't find anymore. But at the time that was the tech that they wanted to use. Um, and I think I rented them like 350 of those units, like literally every single Nextel that this company owned, we got them. And I think we even had to bring in extra from, from like Nextel, the, the vendor, if you will. Um, and I would program the phones and they all had, you know, call lists. So if John Doe wanted to reach Jane Smith, he just had to like punch in Jane and they would find, what her phone was right so everybody had to be assigned and so it kind of goes back to that skill set that i learned in the barrel room of like organizing 
large sets of data, right? Whether it be barrels or phones or, you know, now it's, you know, documents and data and, and software systems. But that same skill set of being able to like look at large things, dissect it, put it in a table with a column and like organize that data and stay organized. I really relied on my memory on there too. But uh, that was my biggest deal. Um, it was fun. Had a good time. Realized that like I was getting the shaft on that deal financially. You know, I would get a $400 a month car allowance, but I lived in San Francisco or I didn't live in San Francisco. I lived across the bridge. I'd have to cross two bridges to go from the office to San Francisco. And the majority of my clients were in San Francisco. So it cost me $14 a day just to cross those two bridges. Don't even count gas and all that other stuff. So I went to Marty and I said, Marty, I'm, I'm losing money, man. And like in less than a year, I've turned this department into like negatives into like positives. Like we went from like negative $30,000 a year to like $600,000 in a year. Like I just flipped it on its end. And I had a couple strategies for doing that. I basically partnered with the last person that was at my job who started her own company. She didn't have the inventory and I had the inventory. So I would rent to her at a discount. So she got, you know, full tilt and I got like, and I gave her 20%, you know, she could, she would make 20% on the deal and I was still making 30% on the deal or whatever. So everybody was, was happy, right? The gear was rented. It was out. It wasn't sitting on the shelf. Cause that's the thing in rentals, right? Like you buy that asset, that asset sits on the shelf. It's not making you any money. So you got to get it out there. You got to get it rented. Um, you know, so things like that. Uh, and Marty was like, no. Like, cause I was like, I want a car. If you're not going to give me, if you're not going to up my car allowance, I want a car. Cause they had a car, but it was like this 1989 Ford Taurus station wagon with wood paneling. It was fucking awful. <laughs> like it smelled like definitely like people smoked in it. Like it was, it was bad. Um, which is saying something. Cause at the time I drove a 98 Toyota Tacoma with busted up fenders that wasn't in much better shape, but it was much better than that fucking station wagon. I'll tell you that. Um, it had air conditioning that worked, right? Like the Taurus didn't. So Marty said no. Um, and I was like, cool. I wasn't making a lot of money. I was losing money. And, uh, I went and found an IT job. Like I just went and found a company, alternative technologies, not sponsored. Um, they were hiring for help desk, like just basic help desk, you know, so I'm like, well, maybe I just, maybe I use my IT degree, right? So like suddenly those $12 an hour jobs were kind of looking a little bit, you know, I mean, those $12 an hour jobs had turned into like 20 hour, you know, $20 an hour jobs, but I had taken such a hit from the mechanics industry. This was still like 2009, 2010 that like I was able to take a little bit more risk because I wasn't really losing anything. I wasn't taking a pay cut. I'd already taken the pay cut. Um, and my ex-wife at the time was like, you know, maybe it's time to get back into IT, you know, what you went to school for, you know, your AA degree, whatever, you know, maybe they'll give you a shot. So I, I interviewed with this company, Alternative Tech, and uh, got the job, became like help desk level one and two, quickly became like I taught myself uh, Exchange Server, Microsoft Server. They catered to like nonprofits and small businesses, like but like bigger than just like a single entity, like small law firms with like multiple partners, uh, public housing, um, youth services, things like that, right? So they had accounts all over and they were they were about 40 or 60 people 
across both the telecom side. So they they made their bones in phone systems. They would sell phone systems and install them. But then they started like doing the help desk tech, right? So supporting um, supporting the, the desktop needs, the um, IT needs, if you will. And so IT was a little bit smaller and there was like four or five of us, maybe three of us like on the help desks, all working from home. So this was my first foray into working from home was like 2011. I was pretty jazzed about it, right? Um, didn't have a commute. Definitely saved a bunch of like monetary costs around um, commuting, you know, gas, insurance, all that stuff. And so it was really kind of cool to work from home. Um, and I proved I proved myself well there too, right? Like I turned myself from an L1, L2 into an L3. I taught myself, you know, Exchange Server, which and domain servers and all that type of stuff, which we didn't even touch in class. Like when I was in school, that wasn't a thing that we, like that wasn't the degree I was going to school for, right? Like it was like basic. Um, and this was more advanced stuff. Um, troubleshooting over the phone. We'd also troubleshoot copiers. I can't tell you the number of people. And like I cringe when I look at like Facebook posts from back then when it's like, I think the last one I read was something like, if you're going to call and not know how to spell your own name, I can't help you enter in your username. Like, you know, <laughs> something stupid like that, right? Or like, if I tell you to turn it off and turn it back on, I actually need you to do that, not tell me you did it and just like be like, no, it's not working. Um, so, you know, I did that for a while. Um, they made me the dispatcher because I had that experience at Pape and still doing the, um, you know, L2, L3 type of support. Um, it was going well. Um, I didn't see any growth. And when I talked to the owner about a raise, because I'm like, hey, we talked about a raise before I started. Like, where are we at with that? Like, you know, because I had, you know, I was getting pressure from my ex-wife to make more money. I mean, literally, it was like, make more money or I'm going to divorce you. I mean, she didn't say those words, but it was like, it definitely put a strain that like, you know, and I had some debt from, you know, just being a stupid ass, you know, over the last decade. Um, but, you know, it was... She had gone up when we met. She, we were both making about 65, 70. She made it through the recession, parlayed that from a, you know, $72,000 a year job to like $90,000 and I went down. So like we weren't making headway, you know, we were just kind of treading water. Um, so I had pressure on me to make more money um, and really kind of pull my weight. And, you know, there was a little bit of the, I'm the man I should provide, you know, that kind of, I mean, that's the, that's the environment I kind of grew up in, right? That the man provides and whether that means monetarily, whether that means you go out and hunt and kill and bring home your own food, you know, you grow your own food or like you, you make ends meet, you know, you provide. Um, so that was important to me. So, you know, it put a little bit of pressure on me to talk to them to, you know, Hey, I proved myself. I've taken on more responsibility with no additional pay. What's up with that? You know, and like, this is not an unfamiliar place I've been, right? Like everything I've done, it's like, Hey guys, this isn't an area that I'm familiar with. I'll prove myself. And when I prove myself, there's an expectation on my side that you're going to compensate me commiserately. Right. And I think maybe as a, as an adult now, and I say adult now, cause I, I definitely was not a grown up then, you know, I was in my mid twenties. I think I was like 20. I would have been married, so I was like 28, 29. So, you know, we're fast-forwarding in time here. Um, maybe 30. No, I would have been 30. Um, you know, there was there was, a, there was a little immaturity about it, you know, an entitlement. You know, unfortunately, as much as I don't want to admit it, I am a fucking millennial. 
Um, I'm an elder millennial, so respect your elders, motherfuckers. <laughs> um, born in 1981, so suck a dick. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was entitlement there, you know, and I felt like I deserved it. And I felt like I saw my friends and other people doing well, and I wanted those things, right? Like, not keeping up with the Joneses, I just didn't want to feel like we were always behind. Um, and I wanted to contribute, you know, I wanted to prove my worth. And, and unfortunately, the way that my I'm wired, like I, I equate my self worth to what I was, you know, my dollar amount, what I provided. And that could probably be like a part seven of this series to like talk about the psyche of like, you know, what relationships do to you and, and expectations. So, you know, I put it to them and asked for a raise and they basically said no. And they said, well, reevaluate in a year. And then Jason, you've heard me mention him before. Um, actually, there was this guy, Tom. I don't talk to Tom anymore, mostly because Tom felt like that Charlottesville guy that ran people over at that Unite the Right rally or whatever oh, was completely yeah. fucking justified for running that girl over. And I I asked him, be the fuck what? well out of my life. Yeah. So we uh, we dis- we uh, we didn't even agree to disagree. I just dis fucking agreed with him and was like, no, I can't. I can't deal with you. Oh my um, god. Yeah. Like, like sent me edited video to prove that like he was hitting. I was like, dude, the, just sh- the girl died. He's in prison. You're fucking wrong. Um, none of us were there. Whatever. That's a whole separate topic. But Tom worked for a um, not a competitor to alternative text, but like kind of in the same industry in the same area i don't remember what it was called but he had offered me like four or five grand more a year to come work for them doing the same thing i was doing at alternative tech and my ex-wife i'll never forget this um we were laying in bed and we're talking about it she's like i would rather you go work for jason well jason about a year previous to that had joined this small little startup company software startup company called viva systems not sponsored and um you know he was he was working in support for this product he had moved to ohio all these crazy things like you know he was living in napa um got up and left and moved to to ohio to take this job left his family there you know it's all these crazy things right um the irony though is that viva systems is based in pleasanton california and pleasanton was about 20 minutes from where we lived and probably about an hour from where Jason lived, but support happened to be in Ohio. And Jason had recently got promoted to take over um, and start his own team around this product called Vault. And Jason was like, hey, I'm hiring for a guy. I need a guy. Like you just, the only downside is you have to move to Ohio. And I'm like, I'm not moving to fucking Ohio. Ohio sucks. Um, Then I got here, I'm like, yep, Ohio definitely does suck. (laughs) Um, Why is it so flat? Let's talk about that. But um, so, you know, I remember her saying, I would rather you go work for Jason. Now, in part two, we'll talk about it probably. But, like, I don't know if she was setting me up for divorce at that point. Like, hey, get him out of the house, you know, whatever. Or if it was less premeditated than that. I don't know. Maybe I'm giving her too much credit. I don't really know. But I remember thinking about it and being like, that would solve a lot of problems, right? She hated riding the train to San Francisco every day. It was an hour each way. It would take a lot of strain off the financial aspect of things because while the money wasn't that much greater in Columbus, it was cheaper to live here, you know, and we had equity in our home so we could literally sell our house in California for like, I don't know, 354 and buy a place in Hilliard for like 100 you know, like pay cash for it. 
Um, so I remember like calling Jason and being like, all right, man, let's do this. And he's like, dude, I just hired someone last week. He's like, so you're going to have to wait. I'm like, motherfucker. So, you know, I worked at alternative text a little bit longer, ended up being there for like a year and a half. Um, didn't get any traction. You know, I learned some stuff and there's still one guy that I still follow. Um, he did fairly well. He ended up at like Okta and then he's at uh, another place now. I don't even know what they do. It's, I think it's still like single sign on identity providers, stuff like that. But, um, you know, as far as I know, alternative tech is still just doing what they're doing. You know, great firm, no complaints. It's just a little, I don't say small potatoes for me, but like my ambition was bigger than, you know, than that place. Um, and Vivo seemed like a place where I could learn and grow. Um, so the plan was start at Viva as a soft, I think we were called like some weird name that was kind of lame and it was like very ambiguous. It was like uh product, not product advisor, but it was like product something, um, products. It was like product support, but it had like a weird, like a weird name that was like belayed. Like it didn't even make sense. Like if I told you what I did, they'd be like, your title doesn't make sense for that right like that's that's not <laughs> what you do so we actually got the title changed to product support engineer because the product was so new we were literally engineering like asking the question like uh should the product do that like is it designed to do that is it a bad design a good design is it a code problem and like we would work with product and clients to like discover these things um i was vault employee number 44 um viva systems is now i think there was like I was vault employee number 44, but I was like employee number like 354 or something like that. This company is now 4,000 people. You can look them up on the NASDAQ or, you know, New York Stock Stock Exchange market cap of like billions of dollars, like huge market share. Had a great time working at Viva, Um, you know, good and bad like everywhere. But it was the first place I actually was like after Pape, I was like, I have a career here. Like I can make a career out of this thing. So I worked in support, worked for Jason, which advice to everyone, free advice, uh, never work for your best friend. Um, it puts a strain on your friendship that you can't really articulate. Um, mostly because I knew how to manipulate Jason and Jason knew how to manipulate me. Um, I probably did way more manipulating than he did, but you know, there was a, We'd always have to say like, okay, I'm taking my, like, this is friend Patrick talking, or this is, you know, employee Patrick talking. And there was a little bad blood there for a couple years um, until I stopped working for him. So, you know, start as a product support engineer or whatever bullshit title it was, got it changed, became the first senior product support engineer. They didn't have that title because that's how startup-y this place was. Like, we could just make shit up. You know, Jason, you know, grew the department you know, eventually became like a senior director there managing like 60, 70, 80 people. Um, you know, so he did very well for himself there as well. Um, but I moved from support into like managed services. So that was, this was kind of my, you know, first foray into consulting, right. Was working with clients on their problems, you know, understanding their requirements and then being able to actually do something about it in support. You would take people's problems and then just hand it off to product and development. Like, Hey, this is broke. Fix it. Right. But this was like, Hey, I want to implement a new process. I want to change the software to like work better for me. Right. And, and the software at its core managed documents for the pharmaceutical industry. So 
Think about it as a very smart filing cabinet that would store your content, but actually also know what was in draft, what was in review, and what was approved for use, right? And then there's all the metadata around it. So think about SharePoint on steroids, or think about a folder file structure without the for folder structure, right? It was designed to be the consumer web. So everybody knows how to use Amazon, but nobody ever took Amazon training, right? So it was designed to be intuitive. It was designed to be just type in what you're looking for. And in the pharma world, which traditionally is like four to five years, that's being generous, probably 10 years behind everybody else and how they do things. They were like making file names that were 230 characters long that would have the name and the date and the study or the product or whatever in the file name because then they dump it in a folder and then there'd be nested folders and nested files and things like that. So it was very, very rudimentary. Right, there was a couple players on the market, Documentum, NextDocs. They tried to fix it, but Viva was the first one that came along and developed a content management system based upon um, some regulatory requirements, as well as built it in the cloud. So based it off of uh, based it off of cloud servers. I mean, this is 2011, 12. Like everyone's familiar with the cloud now, but like back then, like cloud was just kind of coming out. Um, the CEO, and you guys can do read up on Viva, but the CEO is X, like VP of product from Salesforce. So we kind of took that, um, that idea of the cloud and built it out for pharma in the document content management space. They have another product too that, you know, really kind of, I'm not going to give a, di a diatribe about Viva. Great company, um, has a tremendous track record, um, uh, I'm not going to give stock tips, but uh, I owned stock in them at one point. Um, and then I wanted a house, so I sold it. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, they did some pioneering shit and I was on the ground floor of that. And like nothing can, you know, they say that life is about who you know and timing. And I knew the right person and the timing was right and it all kind of worked out. So, you know, I joined Viva, you know, and I kind of consider that I consider myself now a vault professional. Like, if you ask me what I do, I'm a consultant, but like I'm a consultant in a very niche place. Like I consult about Viva Vault. Like I work with life sciences companies. So if you take any drugs, chances are I've worked with the company that made that drug or I know somebody that's, you know, worked with them. Their market share is tremendous. They've done a fantastic job of revolutionizing the industry, you know, increasing the speed to market of their products. So basically getting the products into the hands of patients and doctors faster through the R&D regulatory and, and uh, quality processes, right? And then the commercialization of those products. If you've seen any sort of glossy ad in a magazine or a TV ad about, you know, somebody with herpes riding a bicycle with a big old smile on their face, that went through a medical, legal, and regulatory review, which is all managed within Vault, right? So the, the construct of what they've built and the framework that these companies can work within is tremendous. So I know I sound like a freaking idiot about, you know, my 20s, you know, my professional career, but really I hit 31, 32, I hit my stride. You know, I found something that I was good at. You know, I always kind of say that if I didn't have to work for money, I'd, uh, you know, be a woodworker. I would live in a cabin in Alaska, but unfortunately that's not the world we live in. So, you know, ultimately Viva was the start of, of, of where I am now. So it's the, you know, the first step on the yellow brick road before I get to the, you know, the, the kingdom of Oz. Um, and really, I learned I learned that I like doing it. I learned that I like a challenge. I learned that I like solving problems. And I really connected the dots, right? And so if you take 
if you take everything that I've done, minus like the retail stuff, but the winery and the mechanics and the, you know, even the sales stuff, right? Like all I was doing was solving people's problems, right? And I like the challenge of connecting disparate places and points, you know, dots on a map and saying, hey, if you connect these in a different way, it solves your problem, right? Even walkie-talkie rentals, like you need six radios in Ukiah by five o'clock, like let me see what I can do, right? Um, it was never no, it was let me see what I can do. And so I took that attitude and really kind of matured in a lot of ways and connected those dots together and said, this is what I want to do. Like I want to solve problems and I want to solve problems for for people that, I don't want to say matter, that's not the right word, but people that are doing something with their lives that I believe in. So basically took you through my resume over the last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, um, that's a, this is an interesting episode because we went, like you just said, straight through the resume, and that was fun. Um, it's different. Let's, uh, I mean, this has been two hours, so do you want to do you want to go into a part two uh down the road and we'll do we'll do personal life next i don't know we'll have to see what kind of response you get from your listeners maybe like get that turd off the off the air <laughs> we don't want to hear from that guy anymore maybe my voice is like nails on a chalkboard to some people mm, definitely nails on a chalkboard to me yeah well <laughs> someone with a low iq would say something like that fair enough um <laughs> yeah i mean we can do a, we can do a part two you know i'm not against it you know I'm, cool I'm usually an open book and, you know, I become more and more open the more bourbon you feed me. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I would say, you know, people listening to this, you know, especially in your 20s, 30s, even 40s. I mean, like, I would say that I'm still shaping my identity as, you know, my professional identity um, every day, right? Every day is an opportunity to experience or learn or grow and if you come out of even negative experiences learning something about yourself learning something about an industry learning something about a client learning something about the company you work for or don't work for you know that's all we can really do as humans right is just continue to learn and grow we're we're made for that right like we're made to adapt um you know so if you're unhappy in what you're doing um like selling ladies shoes you could you know eventually become a heavy equipment mechanic you know i always do this thing where it's like uh you know those stupid icebreakers where they're like two truths and a lie oh yeah so i always throw out like i was a forklift mechanic i was uh, a barrel master in napa um and i've walked on hot coals and they're like oh well you weren't a barrel master i'm like that's true they're all true like they're all truths right but they all sound completely ridiculous right of like that wouldn't be the same thing like i didn't follow a traditional path and i'm sure one of our friends dota would like rip me a new one for that and like tell me how i'm an idiot for even doing any of those things or bringing it up again or bringing up that i'm from california um you know the one thing that we have not said the entire time on this podcast what's up I travel for work. <laughs> and I think on that we should end the podcast that I that I travel for work. Yep. Um hashtag services life. I like that. That's good. We um just like we call you or make fun of you for being from California. Because yeah. you say it all the time. You just travel for work travel all the time. Travel for work, yeah. Uh, travel for work. Uh, <laughs> it's for you. But That's like also you, 
also you're like the social butterfly so when you introduce yourself to joe at the bar you're like i travel for work like yeah it just kind of (laughs) happens i mean being a professional consultant like i'm an introverted extrovert right what that means is like i can turn it on but like it takes a toll right so when i when i do travel for work and i go to these places and i sit in conference rooms for eight nine ten hours a day in front of people i don't know talking about fucking medical legal regulatory reviews of pharmacy like it's i know i make it sound sexy but it's very boring right (laughs) like the subject matter is boring like nobody like if you're getting excited about this you're in the industry it's it's pertinent to you but outside of this it's like watching paint dry and i mean that in the most like complimentary way possible it's important to the people that do it and it has a place in the world but like I love introducing myself as a software consultant and just watching people's eyes glaze over because I'm like, ha, you don't want to talk to me. <laughs> Kelsey used to introduce me as an IT guy. And I was like, don't tell them that because the next question is my printer's broken or my phone. Like, can you look at my phone? Yeah. No, I cannot. I mean, I could, but I'm going to charge you $300 an hour to do it. Like, so unless you got a check right now that I can like, you can Venmo me and then I'll look at your phone. But yeah, man, I mean, the 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 gift of gab is definitely a good skill to have when you're a consultant being able to look at a stranger and make up you know make conversation and make a friend kelsey always gives me shit she's like oh we go to bars and you always make friends i'm like yeah because i talk to people she's like i just don't know how you like how do you talk to people i'm like well i usually start with hello right (laughs) my name's patrick i'm from california and i travel from work you know like (laughs) you you have your stick right and it gets a little repetitive and so when you have a close group of degenerate friends like i do you know they hear the same thing over and over and over again um but uh we had a daughter about 16 months ago so you know it's been nice to be able to share time you know at home with them being a new dad not having the constraints of getting on an airplane and flying to boston or switzerland or san diego or chicago and everyone's like oh that sounds so exciting and like you're a consultant like fancy dinners and it's like um no i spent a weekend in zurich in my hotel room and spent 250 dollars on a bottle of bullet bourbon because everything was closed and like drank by myself watching nfl football in a bar like because there's nothing else to do on a sunday because everything there is closed you know um can't tell you how many nights you just go to bed at seven o'clock because you're so drained from the day you know that introverted extrovert you got to recharge so i'm sure some people will understand that um but take care of your extroverts because sometimes they're introverted extroverts and they're going to need that alone time um they're going to need to like turn off unplug not look at a bright screen or not engage in in conversation um even this podcast takes energy you know um so yeah i don't know I can I can agree with that being an extroverted introvert mm. where I'm very introverted all the time and then I'm extroverted when I want to be and you know I also have to talk to people all day long and then the podcast takes work I talk to you uh, whoever else is gonna be a guest I set the time up I do the scheduling and then I have to message you know the sound engineer say hey like here's the podcast episode here's what we did um you know i watch the time and i'd be like oh messed up here like he can go in and fix it and i can be like all right here's all the other ones 
and yeah it's a, it's a lot of work yeah <laughs> and i need to just sit on the couch and do nothing for a lot of hours to recharge that social battery i mean anything that's worthwhile is typically a lot of work right yeah if it was easy everyone would do it i'm full of True. cliches these days but uh yeah, I mean, I think I think doing anything worthwhile should be a little bit difficult. You know, it should take something out of you, and I think that it's better for that. You put a little of your soul into it. It's genuine. It's it's sincere, and that comes across. And whether it's a podcast or, you know, uh, making a pizza or being a dental student, like, you know, put your heart and soul into it. You know, give something of yourself every day. And you will feel ownership over everything you touch. And, like, that's not in a weird, like, I think I heard someone say, like, you know, do a good job and sign your work with excellence. And, and it has to do with, you know, probably back to, like, what my mom told me, like, don't half-ass things. Like, if you're going to do something, do it all the way. That's why laundry, I don't even give it half an ass. I just don't. <laughs> I, I ask the fuck out of that, right? Like, because laundry, I'm never going to do it. I'm, I'll, I'll, like, go through spurts and, like, it'll look great for, like, seven seconds. And then, like, oh, uh yeah i don't want to wear this sock anymore like oh it goes on the ground i don't know exactly how many laundry baskets there are in our house but it's probably encroaching on 10 and i use four of them because two <laughs> are for dirty and two are for clean and they just kind of rotate in and out so there's a system and there's a chair that the clothes go on and you know so but, but that's an area just also know your weaknesses know like know what you want to spend your time on um, I don't know. That's my advice. I don't even know if that's the point of this podcast, but, uh, well, actually at the end here, I usually ask everyone the same question. Oh, it's the, uh, what advice do you want to leave off, Ooh. uh, at the end of the episode that you want to live on that you said you just gave some great advice. Well, now I gotta, uh, now I gotta come up with something else. <laughs> like, fuck, I used up all my material. Um, <laughs> It's all the cliche stuff that you'll read in any self-help book. Like, be true to yourself. Know thyself. You know. It takes some people longer to do that. It takes people going through trauma to know that. Or going through heartache to know that. Right? So, like, just know that, like, inspiration and your motivation may come from a completely, you know, dark place. And, like, don't run from it. Embrace it. You know? Um... But harness it. Don't go down a dark alley or a dark black hole and just wallow in it. Like, figure out, harness it, make it work for you. You know, have it be that torch that you're carrying to, like, pull yourself up. I mean, my wife and I were just talking the other day. Like, we've only been together. It'll be seven years in July. A lot's happened in the last seven years, you know. We met. Lived in San Francisco for a year. Uh, we moved back. We bought a house. We bought another house. Um we had a baby we have knock on wood like never had covid yet so which is surprising um you know we're looking possibly for another house like you know there's just we've done a lot of things in seven years and it feels like we've been together for a million like i i can't i have a really good memory um it's not photographic it's not eidetic but like i remember names and faces and events like with graphic detail um on recall but i can't just start like i have to be talking about it to like recall it right if you're like well what were you doing on june 7th i'll be like fucking sleeping i don't know like eating a cheeseburger like i, I don't know what i was doing right <laughs> but like i can recall words that you said or or conversations we've had uh, events that have happened uh, and like i can't remember a time in my life when kelsey wasn't a part of it right or where i was happier than i am with her 
Now, don't get me wrong, I love her, but I don't like her every day, right? And I, but I wake up choosing to love her, and I wake up choosing that. So I'm, I'm intentional in my thoughts, right? I'm intentional in my feelings with her, and I think that that should apply to everything we do. Like, if you don't like your job, change it. Doesn't matter why you don't like it. You don't make enough money. You're not appreciated. You're bored, right? You're not challenged. Um, your commute sucks. Maybe you don't have a commute. Maybe you want to travel for work. Maybe you want to be from California. You can do those things. Like all I'm saying is like figure out what motivates you and harness it because that's the biggest thing. And typically for me, it's always a negative that I harness, right? It's like, well, fuck you. I'm going to prove you wrong, right? You say I'm not worth anything. You say that I'll never amount to anything. I'm not living up to my potential. Well, now I want to prove you wrong because I'm competitive in that way. I want to win, right? But it wasn't until I realized that I was playing a game of life, maybe that's trademarked, not a sponsor, um, you know, that you're playing in this game. And like, if you're not playing to win, the only person you're losing against is yourself. Like Cameron and I are friends. I don't compete with him. You know, I want him to do well and I want me to do well, but him doing well doesn't mean that I'm not doing well or me doing better than him doesn't mean that he's not doing well. So find that thing, harness it, uh, and realize that the only person you really have to be accountable to is yourself and like, you know, do better. If you don't, if you don't like your situation, change it. You know, if you, if you hate waking up every day, then like figure out how to change that. What would make you happier? You know, Kelsey always tells me, I'm not scared about you leaving me for another woman, but a cabin in Alaska, I'm terrified of that, you know, like, cause that's, that's interesting. And then I'll go and do it and be like, man, this sucks. I got to chop wood every day. Fucking <laughs> bears. Oof snakes no thanks i'm coming home you know fucking ohio um on that note about ohio i know i've talked a lot of shit about ohio i feel like i had to talk shit about ohio um i mentioned that we move back to san francisco for a year my only rule was that we come back to ohio i love it here i love my friends i love the life that we built here you know i miss the mountains and i miss the water i'll be honest um i don't miss fucking droughts and wildfires though that's some shitty shit um I don't miss the taxes, but I feel like everywhere has taxes unless you live in like Oregon or Texas. So, I mean, you know, Ohio is a great place to live. I don't know if I would want to live in like Lima uh, or, you know, fucking Tiffin or Logan. Um, Youngstown. uh, Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Well, probably. Well, you know, definitely not Youngstown Um, or Springfield or or Dayton or whatever's on the other side of Wheeling like that way like no but uh no ohio's great i love i love ohio um ohio against the world you know i feel like everyone when i when i travel for work um i always meet people from ohio and they're like oh yeah like i grew up in wherever like i went to school at wherever and it's like go away like go <laughs> like can i meet someone not from ohio like even when i lived in san francisco they'd be like oh yeah like I grew up in, in Mansfield and it's like, what are you doing here? Or I also get the question like, why the fuck did you move here from California? And I'm like, well, cause it's expensive and uh, it's a nice place to visit. So, you know, uh, I chose Ohio. Well, Ohio chose me the first time and I chose Ohio the second time. So I wanted to come back here. You know, I wanted to, uh, start a family here put down roots it'll be 10 years this december that i've been here um and i don't count that year in san francisco as me not being here because i still had property here not property but like my things were here in storage um 
we own a rental property here. So like there was always roots here unless we found a better place, which Seattle or Bozeman, Montana would have been like in those, like in those upper echelons, um, anywhere in Maine, uh, looking at you, Portland, um, you know, that probably wouldn't have won out over, excuse me, over Columbus, but yeah, man, fuck Ohio, but I chose it again. So (laughs) fuck me, I guess. Although classically, uh, I was in San Francisco probably 2014 and just walked by this shop and it, there was a red t-shirt and, uh, uh, it said friends don't let friends live in Ohio. Definitely bought that (laughs) motherfucking t-shirt. Um, cause I'm like, that's such a random thing to see like on a street in San Francisco. And I was like, I need that shirt. Um, consequently they did not have it in my size i was like an extra extra large and all they had was a large so i've never physically worn that shirt but i bought it because i thought it was funny now now my wife wears it asleep in so um <laughs> the friends don't let friends live in ohio shirt is one of my favorite shirts that i've never actually worn love it so it's a it's a great spot to end it on sounds good <laughs> Perfect. Thanks for coming by and uh, doing this, and uh, we'll get you back here soon for a second episode. To uh, I feel like we're gonna need a third episode. I'm already, I'm already thinking a third episode. Stuff. Perfect. Love it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for stopping by, and uh, until next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Fatal to Prejudice. If you or anyone you know would like to be a guest, please visit my website at cameronchats.com and fill out the contact me form please fill out the subject line as podcast interview and write me a small blurb on why you or someone you know should be a guest. I'll leave a link in the description for ease of access. You can support this podcast by listening to it on your favorite podcasting site. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Another way to support is by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash fatal to prejudice. Patreon is the only monetary support system. If you would like to sign up and support through there, I am forever grateful for you. Again, thank you for tuning in.